Well, good morning and happy 4th of July weekend. So uh, I'm sorry you didn't get to go out of town, but I'm really thrilled that you're here with us uh, this morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I actually had the opportunity with my family to get out of town uh, for a couple weeks, so I want to just start by saying thank you. Uh, it's because of your generosity that uh, myself and our other pastors and leaders or staff are able to do that and kind of take uh, little breaks and kind of recharge our batteries. So thank you for that. Really happy to be back. We're starting a new series this morning uh, called We Want a King. And here's the description that we're using for the series. It's a series that centers on the rise and fall of Israel's first three kings, uh, who are Saul, David, and Solomon. And it explores uh, different themes of power and brokenness, national division, personal failure. Uh, does this sound like we need this? Uh, and uh, ultimately, cultivating a heart after God. And what we're going to see in these three kings as we kind of look at the biography of these three kings, we're going to see ultimately how what we need is fulfilled in King Jesus. The, the title for this series comes out of the passage that we're going to be in uh, this morning. Ray read a portion of that already in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I realize not everybody will know where that is. So that's in the Old Testament, which is the first half of the scriptures. Uh, if you get to Judges and then the book of Ruth, and then you'll see 1 Samuel. If you made it to 2 Samuel, you've gone too far. And then you can always use the table of contents. So uh, if you're not sure where that is. Now, this request for a king in and of itself is not necessarily a terrible thing. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells his people that he's eventually going to give them a king. The problem, and what we're going to dial in on in our passage this morning, is that in the essence of what they're asking, they're rejecting God as their king. And when they do that, just like when we do that, it turns into a real disaster. Now, when we work through Old Testament narratives and stories like we're going to in this series, we have to hold in our mind the great grand narrative of the scriptures um, that God is telling, which is ultimately the story of the coming of his son, Jesus, Jesus who arrives as the solution and the answer to the questions and the problems that mankind is facing and how Jesus is ultimately the destination that we're seeing. So as we're reading through this and going through the series, we have to hold that in our mind. And I realize that a lot of times we can kind of get lost in the Old Testament because it just seems like a place and a time that's so radically different than the time that we're in now. But what we're going to see, especially today, as we navigate through these stories, is that there is a shocking relevance to us. We're going to see uh, that in the nation of Israel, when these people and God's people, their questions are really our questions, and what they desire to see and experience is really what we desire to see and experience. And I know that some of us uh, might be very familiar uh, with where we are in the biblical narrative, but there's others of us who this, might, this is all brand new. We've never even heard of 1 Samuel, never even heard of Saul or David or, or Solomon. So uh, we're going to show a really quick video, our friends at the Bible Project, uh, have put together a helpful tool to help us kind of get our bearings and understand where we are in this story. It, and by the way, if, if you're trying to learn more about the scriptures and trying to understand more what the whole comprehensive story of the scriptures, these uh, these videos are 
extremely helpful. You can just find them on YouTube. If you just YouTube or Google Bible Project, um, you'll be able to kind of work through them. But we use them a lot as pastors just to kind of help us get a good uh, kind of frame of reference where we are. So we're going to watch this real quick video just to kind of help us get some footing as we start our series. So let's pay attention to the screen. The books of First and Second Samuel there are two separate books in our modern Bibles, but that division is due simply to scroll length. It was originally written as one coherent story. We're just going to cover the book of 1 Samuel in this video. So after Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt, they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai and eventually came into the promised land. And there Israel was supposed to be faithful to God and obey the covenant commands. Before the book of Samuel, judges showed how Israel failed at that task big time. It was a period of moral chaos, and it showed Israel's need for wise, faithful leaders. The book of Samuel provides an answer to that need. The book of Samuel's story focuses on three main characters, the prophet Samuel, where the book gets its name, and then King Saul, and after that, King David. And all three of them transitioned Israel from a group of tribes ruled by judges into a unified kingdom ruled by King David in Jerusalem. And the book of Samuel has a fascinating design that weaves the story of these three characters together in four main parts. Samuel, he's the key leader and prophet in the first section of the book, but then he also plays a key role in the next section, which is Saul's story. And it's told in two movements, Saul's rise to power and then his failures. And the second part is about his downfall and his tragic death. And then the drama of Saul's demise is matched by David's exciting rise to power. And then David's story is told in two movements. First, he rides the wave of his success, followed by his own tragic failure and the slow self-destruction of his family and then his kingdom. The book concludes with an epilogue that reflects back over the whole story. So let's dive in and see how this all unfolds. Part one picks up from the chaos of the book of Judges, and we're introduced to a touching story about a woman named Hannah. And she's grieved because she has never been able to have children. And by God's grace, she finally has a son named Samuel. And in joy, she sings this amazing poem in chapter 2. And the poem is all about how God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, about how despite tragedies and human evil, God is working out his purposes in history. And also it's about how God will one day raise up an anointed king for his people. Now, Hannah's poem has been placed here at the beginning of the book to introduce these key themes that we're going to see throughout the whole story, like the next one. Samuel grows up and becomes a great prophet and leader for the people of Israel at the same time that the Philistines rise to power as Israel's arch nemesis. And in this crucial battle, the Israelites get arrogant and instead of praying and asking God for help, they trot out the Ark of the Covenant as this kind of magic trophy that will automatically grant them victory in battle. And so because of their arrogant presumption, God allows Israel to lose the battle and the Ark is stolen. So the Philistines, they take the ark and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And then the god of Israel defeats the Philistines and the god Dagon without an army by sending plagues on the people. And then the Philistines don't want the ark anymore, obviously, and they send it back to Israel. And the point of this little story seems to be this. God is not Israel's trophy. And he opposes pride among the Philistines, but also among his own people. And so Israel needs to remain humble and obedient if they want to experience God's covenant blessing. 
which opens up into the next large section. The Israelites come to Samuel and they say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations have. Go find one for us. And so Samuel, he's kind of ticked off and he goes to consult with God. And God says, yes, their motives are all wrong, but if a king is what they want, give them one. And so we're introduced to the figure of Saul. Now, Saul is a tragic figure because he begins full of promise. He's tall, he's good looking, he's a perfect candidate for a king, but he has deep character flaws. He's dishonest, he lacks integrity, and he seems incapable of acknowledging his own mistakes. And so these flaws become his downfall. He wins some battles at the beginning, but his flaws run so deep, he eventually disqualifies himself by blatantly disobeying God's commands. And so the aging Samuel confronts Saul and Israel. He had warned the people that they would only benefit from a king who's humble and faithful to God. Otherwise, the kings of Israel will bring ruin. So he informs Saul that God is going to raise up a new king to replace him. And so Saul's downfall begins. As God, at the same time, is working behind the scenes to raise up that new king. It's an insignificant shepherd boy named David. He's the least likely candidate to be king. But the famous story of David and Goliath shows that God's choice of David is not based on his family status, but simply on his radical and humble trust in the God of Israel. And so this story embodies all of the themes of Hannah's poem. Proud Saul and Goliath are brought low, while humble David is exalted. From here, we watch Saul slowly descend into madness, while David rises to power. So David starts working for Saul as a general, and he's winning all of the battles, and he's also winning all of the fame. And so Saul gets jealous, and he starts chasing David around, hunting him, trying to kill him. David's done nothing wrong. And so David simply runs and waits in the wilderness. And here we see David's true character. He has multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He simply trusts that despite Saul's evil, God will raise up a king for his people. What's interesting, too, is that many of the poems of David that you find in the book of Psalms are linked to this very period of his life, and they all express the same attitude of trust. And so this section of the book ends with Saul coming to a grisly death after losing a battle with the Philistines. First Samuel tells some of the most intricate, well-told stories you find anywhere in the Bible. And the characters Saul and David, they're portrayed very realistically. And the author's putting them forward as character studies so that you can find yourself in them. So in Saul's story, we see a warning. It's crucial that we reflect on our own character flaws and how they harm us and other people. And with God's help, we need to humble ourselves and deal with our dark side so that Saul's story doesn't become ours. David, on the other hand, is presented as an example of patience and trust in God's timing in our lives. And so he's running in the wilderness, being chased by Saul. David had every reason to think that God had abandoned him, but that's not what he thinks. And so David's story encourages us to trust that despite human evil, God is working out his purposes to oppose the proud and to exalt the humble. And that's what 1 Samuel is all about. There you go. So that gives you a little 
overview. Again, those videos are very helpful if you're trying to get familiar with the Bible. Let's pray, and then we'll get into our text this morning. Father, we love you, and God, we just we are so full of thanksgiving um, because you are the God who sees to it, the God who provides. And God, on this Fourth uh, of July weekend, God, we just we thank you um, for the country that you have put us in. God, we thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy here. God, we thank you for those who have made tremendous sacrifice, God, so that we can have those freedoms. And God, would we be people who understand, um, God, that our freedom ultimately is for us to lay down our lives the way that you have laid down your life for us, Christ Jesus. And so, um, God, would there be an awakening in your church, in this country, God, and that we would fully grasp the freedom that we have in you so that we would be free to love others the way that you have loved us, Lord. So again, Lord, we thank you for what we have here. And God, we thank you for those um, who have won that. And God, now that as we turn our hearts towards this passage, God, um, we, we pray for your spirit, So Holy Spirit, would you come, let this not just be an exercise of our own human intellect or our own human will or understanding, but God, would you do something supernatural um, that you can only do in your power, God, by your Spirit. So again, Holy Spirit, would you just move with freedom, make the Scripture come alive to us, God, allow us to see and to hear you in fresh and new ways. And God, let us not just think about this as something that happened a long time ago, but God, let us see ourselves in your Word and let us hear from you personally. So God, I I pray for help. God, I pray that I would not try to do this in my own power, um, but God, that um, there would be just a, a, a pouring out of your spirit over me and on me, um, God, as we do this. So we love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So when we start in 1 Samuel chapter 8, um, when we start in then these stories, so Israel is in a place in their history where they've taken possession of the promised land, and now they're asking God for a king because they want to guarantee their security and prosperity, and they want a king that they can depend on in their needs. And like you saw in that video, when God hears their request, he understands appropriately so that this is ultimately a rejection of his leadership because God is supposed to be their real king. And it was the people of Israel, it was God's people saying, in essence, listen, we appreciate you as a safety net, God, but the problems that we're experiencing and the enemies that we can see in life and the circumstances that we can see in life Us having an unseen God and an unseen king is not what we want. Now, it's not a total rejection of God, like saying, like, God, we don't want you at all. It's not what they're saying. It was a rejection by saying, God, we don't trust you in all things. Meaning, God, we are glad that we have you, but we want you plus We're going to need something else or someone else to make us happy, to make us secure in this life. Now, this is where the relevance kicks in for us because we all do this. God, I'm 
I'm going to need something besides you in this life in order to feel satisfied and secure. I'm going to be, I'm going to need to be married to the right person. I'm going to need my career to be what I expect it to be. I'm going to need to live at the right address. I'm going to need my kids to perform a certain way. I'm going to need my political party to be in power, making the decisions that I want. There's other kings that we all have, that we all need in order for us to feel like we'll have the life that we need. Now, are these things evil? Like, is it evil to have a great job or a great marriage or a nice home or to care about politics? No, those things are not evil. But we get evil with them when we put those things on the throne of our heart and on the throne of our lives. When we make those things kings, we get evil with them. Okay, so how did, how did the Israelites get here? Because they were, they were in captivity. God frees them from captivity in the Exodus, takes them to the promised land. And we heard a little bit of this history from the video, but in the first few verses of chapter 8, you'll see that Samuel has appointed his sons as judges. And when you think judges, don't think like courtroom, think uh, like leaders. So he appoints his sons as leaders over Israel, and they're an absolute disaster. The scripture says they start to take bribes, they pervert justice. Justice is supposed to be a hallmark of God's people, the nation of Israel. If you read through how God set up his people, justice is a hallmark of what they're supposed to be in contrast to the world, and they make an absolute mockery of it. So now the people, they see this as a real opportunity to get what they've wanted for some time. So look at verse Samuel chapter 8, look at verse 6. And they said, give us a king to lead us. And this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not, that they ha- it's not you that they have rejected, but they've rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. So Samuel takes this request personally. It offends him. And what God has to say to Samuel is like, Samuel, this is not a rejection of you. It's a rejection of me. He says, Samuel, this is not political. This is theological. Their their request represented a lack of trust in and satisfaction with God. God was supposed to be their real king. They were supposed to depend on him for everything. And he says, they've always struggled with this. And if you look through the history of the people of God, they they constantly needed a secure army and guaranteed food and water sources and golden calves to feel secure. It It was never an outright rejection of God. Because most, most of us believe in God, want to follow him, want to live for him. And even if that's not you, maybe you're here today because you're at least interested in that. But the way that they're rejecting God and the way that we so often reject God is that we say, God, I want to follow you, but I'm not going to fully depend on you for everything, or I'm going to insist on other factors and other expectations to be met before I'm truly secure and satisfied. 
I mean, if, if you think about it, it would be a lot easier in our life with God if we could do kind of like a monthly kind of performance review with him. Like if we could have a meeting with God and we'd say, God, we really need to discuss the way that your provision is trending because it seems like the deals that you're bringing aren't quite as fruitful as the deals that you used to bring. God, we need to discuss the way that you're sending me relational prospects because the leads have just not been good lately. God, we need to discuss these different policies that are passing because they're not in line with my vision and my values for my life. It'd be easier to trust God if we could control him. Um, I spent a couple weeks uh, with my family. We went back to the southeast. Uh, my wife's family lives in uh, North Georgia. My family lives on the Gulf Coast in Florida. And we went back and took our kids and uh, basically just did like a road trip for about two weeks between Georgia and, and, and Florida. And uh, when we were in Florida, we were in the hometown where my parents are, where I grew up, um, and we were driving to the beach. And um, we're, we're driving there, and now this is the hometown that I grew up in. I, I lived there for a long, long time. Uh, I have GPS on in the car just for good measure to make sure that we're getting to the beach, getting there the right way. And then also we're following my parents who are driving the car uh, in front of us. Uh, my wife is sitting next to me. Um, and even in spite of me having been there and lived there a long time and driven this road thousands of times and having GPS and following my parents, she still felt like it was very important for her to be able to question the different turns that I was taking. Um, and I just say, well, you know, I have lived here a long time and we do have the GPS on just for good measure and I am following my parents. Um, I also didn't respond like that in a gracious or humble way. Um, I'd like to tell you I did, but my wife actually goes to church here, so she knows uh, exactly how I did respond. We've got a lot to work through, but, um, but that's a lot of the times how we feel that we need to interact with God. God, I, I know you don't get lost, and I know you've never been lost. Now, to be fair to my wife, I have taken my fair share of wrong turns, so she's right in, in her questioning me. But we take that posture with God. God, are you sure? Are you sure about this turn you're taking me on? Are you sure about this direction that we're, that we're taking? When I was in high school taking driver's ed, um, Coach June, who was the varsity football coach, was the driver's ed coach. I don't know why they give the most aggressive, angry men at school this job, but that was his job. And we had these special kind of cars. They were these Buick Centuries that in the passenger seat where Coach June would sit, he had a brake. And so as I was driving, he could hit the brake anytime he wanted to to stop the car. He could control where we were going or how fast we were going. I'm I give those two illustrations because they're pictures of how we want to control and treat God. I'm, I'm happy to be in the car, but I need to be able to have a level of control. I need to be able to have it my way, but we can't control God. So what we do is we put a list of requirements and restrictions on our allegiance and demands that God must meet. We have contingencies on our affections and backups. And if God doesn't meet our requirements, because when you don't trust someone, you feel like you have to control them. And what God is saying here 
is that, Samuel, this is a rejection of me because it's a rejection of trust in me. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is what? You know this, impossible to please God. Without trust or confidence or faith, and faith is like a ladder that we lean up against the wall. And whatever you're leaning that ladder up against is what you have your confidence in or your trust in, your faith in. And we do have a ladder that's up against this wall called God, but we also have these other ladders leaning on other things because we can't just have all the ladders leaning on God. We got to have other things, other ideologies or other people or other experiences. And God says, that's a rejection of me. This is where we got to be honest and reflect. There's a couple questions that we just have to ask ourselves. One of them is, what do I require in addition to God to feel secure and satisfied and happy and fulfilled? What, what do I need in life in addition to God? What am I, what am I striving for and why? Th- that's, that's the question. What am I striving for? And why? What do I have to have? And why do I have to have it? What am I most worried about losing? And why? What what is untouchable? Meaning, what cannot be threatened in my life? And why? And then, what are the things I need in my life to be good so that I can be okay? There's certain things I have to have in my life. Why? Those questions are important because how you answer those questions reveals your king. However you answer that question, that's, that's your king. Now, the interesting thing about the story is that God actually gives them what they ask for. Because sometimes God will answer your prayers so that you learn the hard way so that what you were asking for was the wrong thing. Now, again, a spouse, a better job, a new home, success, influence, those are not bad things. But it's when we have to have those things in order for life to have meaning, like a, like a craving that we can't live without. Israel has this craving for a king. Something in your life has become a king if it's something that you can't live well without. And there's, there's nothing wrong with asking God for things, Uh, Philippians chapter 4 tells us this, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Every time we ask, we cover our asking with thanksgiving. Not because we're just trying to pull a certain lever with God so that we get what we want. It's not some kind of name it, claim it theology, but out of a recognition that everything we need and what we ultimately want is in God. And he is a good father. The New Testament portrays him like that. He's a good father who's acutely and intimately aware of what you need and what you want in your life. And he's a good father who doesn't operate out of scarcity. He's extremely generous. And since we know that we have him, and since we know that he has us, we can pray and we can ask for things. We can come boldly before his throne with thanksgiving. It's a key part that Paul puts in there. Because whether we get them or not, we are okay because we have him. God, I 
I am praying for a spouse. That's a good thing to ask for. But I'm thankful for where you have me in life and the opportunities that I have now in my singleness to serve and to love others that I potentially couldn't have in this season if I were married. God, I pray for a new job, or I pray for a raise, or I pray for some other career direction, but I'm thankful that I know that you will meet all of my needs because I know that you take care of flowers and you take care of sparrows, so you're going to take care of me. So I'm thankful for that. I'm praying for healing It's a good thing to pray for, but I'm thankful that whatever I walk through, you're with me. You're you're the man in the furnace with me. The request of the Israelites was a rejection of God, but it was also a rejection of their God-given identity. Look at verse 5. So they say to Samuel, you're old. Your sons do not follow your ways, which is true. Now appoint a king to lead us, and this is where they reveal their heart to Samuel and to God, such as all the other nations have. The the people are not asking for the king that God has promised. They're asking for a king such as all the other nations have because They want Israel to be a nation like all the other nations. If you skip down to verse 19, we see this. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Now, the law of Moses, the law that was given to the people of God to help to shape the way that they were to live their lives, has a consistent refrain in it that that God had spoken over his people. And, And it's this, be holy because I am holy. Holiness was central to who the people of God were to be. When we think of holy, uh, our mind goes to like being morally pure, which is, which is right, because that's one of the key features of the character of God is his moral purity. But that's not a comprehensive enough way to think about holiness. So originally, the word holy meant distinct or set apart or other than or unlike. And Israel was set apart to be different. Uh, the way that they were structured. They had this kind of covenantal localism with their tribes. Uh, The way that they were to treat each other was different than what all the other nations were doing. The way that they were to treat the foreigners, the way that they were to treat the poor was completely radical in that day, the way that they would set aside things that they owned specifically for the poor. They were a chosen covenantal community with God that was to live by the Torah, God's law, and depend on the love and promises of Yahweh. In this day, Israel was weird. They were different. They were peculiar. And God's like, I want you to be unlike the other nations because I want you to be like me. And they're saying, but we want to be like them. 
Israel was the people of God. At the heart of their covenant with God was the promise, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. They're a special people with a special relationship with God, a holy nation set apart for God. And they were called to be a light to the other nations. They weren't just weird for the sake of being weird. They were set apart and peculiar for the sake of being a light to the other nations so that the other nations would look at them and be like, That's what it's like to have a real God who really loves you and who's really with you and for you. They had a missional identity. They were to be like God so that they would reveal God to the nations. And they reject God, and now they are rejecting their God-given identity. They were supposed to be a nation whose behavior was governed by God's word, but they said, no, we want to be governed and we want to be ruled by the culture around us. What would the nations around us do? Because that's what we want to do. Your word is weird, God. We don't want to be ruled by your weird. The church today is called into the same distinct missional identity. We have the same distinct missional identity. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You, church, are a chosen people. You, church, are a royal priesthood. You, church, are a holy nation. You, redemption, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful Life. What Peter is saying here that the church has the status of God's special people, his holy nation. We're supposed to be ruled and governed by God's word and live in his ways. But are we? We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to be holy. We're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be unlike the world. But are we? We're... we're We're supposed to be a light to the nations. We're supposed to be declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But are we? Are our interactions online, the way that we treat each other, the way that we work, the way that our marriages work, the way that we spend money, Go down the line. Are we distinct? Are we other than or unlike the nations, the world around us? Because we're supposed to be. And we need to consider the ways that we are so easily allowed ourselves to be ruled by the current of the culture, the way that we so easily allow our identity to be shaped by cultural influences and cultural ideologies rather than by God. And and if you're sitting there and you're like, come on, preacher, go after that immorality. Come on, go after it. That's not really what's happening here. That's a part of it. But most commentators and scholars say that the people who were clamoring for the king were the people in Israel who were trying to protect their wealth and their power and their status. So what was happening here is the Philistines are rising up and Israel doesn't have centralized leadership. They don't have a centralized army. They don't have like one king, which means that the people who have power and status and wealth 
all of that stuff is extremely vulnerable. And the other nations who had kings and the other nations who had centralized structures and centralized leadership, they could protect better all of those things. And so, yes, there's immorality in Israel, but there's also a a real fear, a pride, like we saw in that video, a real fear of losing. I could lose my stuff. I could lose my status. I could lose my position. And we might not want a king in order to be like the world, but let's be honest. We do want to be like the world. It's attractive. It's popular. It's easier. It is more comfortable. The way of Yahweh can be embarrassing. It can look weak. It can look peculiar. We can be like Israel. We're like, I'm really tired of not fitting in with the rest of the world. I'm really tired of being other than. Because it means I have to talk differently. It means I have to treat people differently. It means I have to be more patient. I have to think differently. I have to think more thoroughly. I have to be more thought through and more thoughtful. I have to have different values. I have to consider the demands of love and grace and mercy when dealing with people, especially people that aren't like me. One of the highlights of my trip, uh, I actually got to drive um, and visit my roommate from college. I've known this guy since I was 16. He's one of my best friends in the world. I love this guy. Uh, We lived together all through college and went on surf trips and just had an amazing time. He's he's, seriously just a super great guy. He doesn't know the Lord, um, but our family went and we got to visit his family and it was super fun. We went to their house and it's got a great house on the beach and we're sitting in the pool and the kids are swimming around and, you know, he's talking to me about, uh, he's done extremely well for himself, very wealthy guy. Um, and, you know, he's talking to me about the trips that he's been on. He's talking about the business deals that he's on. He's talking about the projects that he's developing and the things that he's building. He's talking to me about the brand new truck that's in his driveway. He's one of the very few people in all of the state of Florida to get one of these brand new trucks that goes 200 miles an hour. I don't know. It's crazy. So he's just like talking to me about all this stuff, all these things that he has, all the stuff that he's doing. And I'm sitting there and I'm just like, gosh, this seems like a really easy life. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't care about like what's unjust in the world. You know, he's not trying to hold the tension of telling the truth and being radical in love. He's not answering emails from people who are like, why did you say this? Why didn't you say this? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's just like, how do I get more money? How do I get more stuff? How do I maintain my life for my family and my world? And I can just float in my pool and drink my beer, and it's just an easy life. And I thought, man, that would be an easy life. And it would also be a blatant rejection of my identity and my calling in Christ. And it leads ultimately to loss and to slavery. Let me read this last section and we'll be done here. This is what 
God tells Samuel to say to the people, verse 8 in 1 Samuel chapter 8, as they've done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, they're, they're doing so to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, God says, you will cry out for relief from the king that you've chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in this day. God is saying, Samuel, what is happening here is nothing new because ever since the garden, humanity has rejected God's rule. We'd rather have a king that takes from us than trust God who is the true king who gives to us. It's why in John chapter 19, when Pilate presses the people, who is your king? They say, we don't have any king but Caesar, the one who takes from us. That's our king. And when the people here are asking for, it's like an undoing of what happened in the Exodus. Just like your enslavement to Pharaoh, this king will take and take and take and take and take. And what we are seeing here is just typical of humanity. We reject God as king, even though it means that we're choosing tyranny. We believe the lie of Satan that God is a tyrant. We believe the cultural narrative that we will be more free without God, but it always ends in slavery. Because when you have other kings besides God, those kings become tyrants. And whatever you look to apart from God to give you life and give you purpose and give you meaning and give you security and satisfaction, it will take all of those things from you because whatever you depend on, you become a slave to. If, if it's success or money or relationships or stuff or recognition or power or pleasure or influence or independence or autonomy, if you need those things for a meaningful life, you will be a slave to those things. We all have a king. A king in your life is whatever you must have to be secure and satisfied, and whatever it is, it controls you. All right, so what do we do? Just go home like super sad for our 4th of July barbecues? <laughs> um, we are going to see next week in chapter 9 that God does give them a king. You saw that in a video. It's Saul. Saul does start off pretty good, but then he just turns out things go real bad. But Saul is set up to contrast God's true king who is Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the true king that we are all seeking. Every king says, obey me and I'll guarantee you happiness. Money, fame, power, stuff, position, pleasure. Every king says, if you obey me, you'll be happy. But it says, if you disappoint me, I'll make you miserable. If money is your king and you don't have enough, you'll be poor and you'll be miserable. Tim Keller is an author and a pastor. He says, Jesus is the only king that if you obtain him, will satisfy you. 
in whom, if you fail him, will forgive you. Jesus is not like the other kings that take and take and take. He says in Mark 10, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And to do what? To give. Give what? My life. Every last drop of blood. As a ransom for many. The true king came to give, which is what we celebrate every week here at communion. The band's going to come up and we're going to go into that moment. Those elements are there in your chair near you. At the trial of Jesus, Pilate has a very pointed question to Jesus. Pilate says to him, he says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answers by saying, my kingdom is not of this world, which is kind of a weird answer. But what Jesus is saying there is he's saying, I'm not a king like the nations have. And church, if we want, if we want a leader, if we want a king that looks like what the world looks for in a king and in a leader, we are really going to be disappointed in Jesus. That's what you see in the New Testament. But if we look for a king who's full of grace and truth, who's radical in love, who does not use power to control, but who in humility and compassion actually sacrifices for his enemies and for their good. If we want a king who is patient and kind, who is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude, who does not demand their own way or keeps a record of wrongs, who does not rejoice at injustice, but who celebrates when truth wins out. If we want a king who always protects and always perseveres, who never fails. If we want a king who leads us into obedience to God, who in fact gives us his obedience when and where we fail. If that's the kind of king that we want, oh, you're going to love having Jesus as your king. And we will love having our lives take the very same shape as his. This moment that we celebrate every week here at this church, this moment of communion, it serves as a very tangible reminder. We hold it in our hands, we taste it in our mouths of what kind of king we have in Jesus because he's a king who gave us his body and he gave us his blood, the, the bread and the cup. And if your confession is that Jesus is my king and my allegiance is to him and him alone, well then you take and you eat in remembrance and in celebration of who he is. But if that's not your confession, if that's not what you believe, then just be warned. Because this is not uh, something by simply going through the motions, you earn some kind of merit or approval or favor. But God, that's not what this is at all. You, you do not have to pretend. You shouldn't pretend. Be warned against pretending. Be honest. For, for the Christian, this is also a moment for your confession. It's a moment to confess, I have had other kings. I do have other kings. My ladder is not leaned solely against you, God. I've got my hope and my trust and all kinds of things. God, I've, I've not outright rejected you, but I've rejected you because I demand all these other things 
to be secure and to be satisfied and to be whole in life. And so this is a moment of repentance. It's a moment of confession. And the scripture says it's by the kindness of God that we return to him. So when you eat and you drink and you confess those things, you experience the kindness of God who forgives you, who loves you, who welcomes you home. So if Jesus is king, eat and drink in celebration of who he is.